Welcome to episode 98 of the Swampflex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede, and I am recording via Skype Magic with Aaron Armstrong of the We Love to Watch podcast. Hey, Brandon. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. I had to fight back all of my instincts to not do an intro myself, because <laughs> yeah. that's the only way I know how to do it. Yeah, and I've uh, been on your show three different times. And I have shamefully waited four years to get you on here, so... (laughs) No, that's fine. Uh, Well, first of all, I'm so excited to be on the show. I listen all the time. And and we love having you on our show, We Love to Watch. The more we can have you back on, the better. There was like a a two-year gap due to some... uh, I forget, it was Skype or microphone issues that we we had to take a break from you and jokingly uh, said to our audience that we put you in the penalty box, but you're out and we need to have you back on more often. But I do want to say, so it's true that you haven't had me on this show in the four years that you've done it, but it's kind of surprising that I haven't brought that up more because <laughs> my co-host, Peter Moran, was on this show two years ago. And as someone who does listen to our podcast, I think you know that I am a big proponent of bits. I like doing <laughs> bits and jokes and uh, long-term character things that are maybe only funny to Peter and myself. But uh, one thing I one thing I do in that area a lot is uh, to be super petty. Oh yeah, you keep score. I think most of your bits are about like competition with Peter. <laughs> yes, uh, in some way or the other, and I think some of that just comes from uh, I have nine brothers and sisters, so like that degree of pettiness was omnipresent throughout my entire life, even though I don't really mean it. But I have a recurring bit with someone who uh, guest hosted for me. Uh, like three years ago when I was sick, that I dislike him and have spent years trying to even the score, which I finally did in a special episode uh, this year. But somehow you escaped that, Brandon. I don't know how you escaped (laughs) my wrath for having Peter on and then not me for two years. I think I've gotten some gentle ribbing over it, which was well-deserved. Me and Peter did like this like marathon recording session too. It was like two episodes in one sitting and it just about melted my brain. (laughs) So hopefully this will go a lot smoother. (laughs) We're only doing one episode, but we are doing essentially an entire uh, month's worth of we love to watch movies. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think our shows have very similar sensibilities. Like we watch more genre-minded material, a lot of like amateur filmmaking you know on top of like the normal stuff too but we approach that from like a genuine trying to appreciate it as art angle which i think is pretty rare in podcasts which i know because i try to find that other places and it's a lot harder than you'd expect (laughs) the instincts usually to make fun of this stuff you know yeah that's something that peter and i uh very much dislike we we talk occasionally about uh, how much we dislike bad movie podcasts and i think you probably get this sometimes too when people see titles that you're covering where they assume that you're a bad movie podcast because that's like the only thing. Oh, if you're covering whatever like 70s horror movie that gets a lot of jokes, you must be just making fun of it for the entire X amount of time. And that was something that was a little bit frustrating to us early on. And I think we've kind of established our niche that that's not what it is. But uh, it is kind of the default, I think, if you're covering a certain type of movies that people assume you are. I had a minor emotional crisis the other day when someone pointed out to me that loving Nick Cage is, like, ironic. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, so every time I'm praising him as, like, an actor I really admire, (laughs) I'm being, like, read as, like, an ironic jerk. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I was like, no, no, I really love his performances. It's It's a genuine appreciation. Who likes him ironically? Like, the reason that people like him is that he... 
brings people so much joy because he throws himself into roles, even minor ones. Yeah, I appreciate the commitment. I think there are people who show up to like Mandy just for the bathroom scene, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that got too many laughs in the theater I was in. It was like almost a release for a certain type of people that were like, finally, Nick Cage is going to Nick Cage. Like, that was a funny scene. I'm not saying that. Oh, it was great. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, it felt like a a relief laugh for a lot from a lot of people. Oh, for sure. I actually was a little worried today because I hadn't seen either of the movies you picked for us to watch. We're doing a psychedelic musicals theme overall. And because I hadn't seen either one and one was more notorious for like a Nathan Rabin thing on on my world of flops, I thought maybe this was a little bit of payback for uh, me praising Xanadu on your podcast. No, I liked Xanadu. (laughs) No, it wasn't. And the the one you're talking about, can can I say what it is? Oh, yeah, for sure. So it's the Apple... I genuinely love the Apple. I gave it five stars on Letterboxd. Like, we invite you on for our Musical May episode, and we watch Xanadu for the first time. I think all three of us. And my knowledge of Xanadu uh, was just based on who did the soundtrack. And uh, I'd seen, like, some clips of the ending scene that looked like shiny 80s chaos. And that's the good stuff. Yeah, I'm like, just someone raided a costume department in Hollywood. Like, everyone has a different costume. Sparkle, shiny. I I was so into it. And I didn't know that that is literally like the only time in that movie that that happens. It's two hours, and the last five minutes is that. So even though I did like Xanadu, we definitely liked it for different reasons, because you don't like uh, the band. (laughs) You don't like Yellow, which which Peter and myself uh, do quite a bit. But I was expecting Xanadu to be that the entire time. And the apple is that the entire time and even crazier. So coming down in the middle on Xanadu and then finding the apple where I was like, this is what I want. This is what I want from like the eighties threw up on everything. Just like gotten every crevice. Like you can't clean it out. It is everywhere. It's just excess. This definitely feels like some sort of like sequel to that conversation. It does. <laughs> well, and I reckon, so the movies I recommend, I recommended like four others, all that you hadn't seen. And I was talking to you a little bit about this in the, in the green room before we started recording is that anytime you give a hearty recommendation to a movie, I always want to check it out. You guys just talked about on your last episode, some cell phone movie wounds wounds that was not on my radar at all and i will probably end up watching it this weekend because you and james talked about it with such a passion so anytime you heartily recommend a movie i always want to check it out and i feel like you're a little bit like that with us as well oh for sure but the one thing that's really hard to pin down for you is that there are movies that if i either just go back through movies i love or if i see a movie that i'm like this is i, I think i called it brandon core like <laughs> This is a movie I know that Brandon will like. And I thought that about the two movies that I recommended, The Monkey's Head and The Apple. But what I can't tell you most of the time is if you just picked a random movie like Jurassic Park, I would have no idea if Brandon likes it. Like, I can't tell it for any movie. I just know when I see something that Brandon would like. And I feel like I'm right based on what I've heard about your reactions to these movies. But yeah, like with the Jurassic Park thing, I'd be like, I don't know. Does he like Jurassic Park or did he spend that summer seeing Carnosaur eight times in the theater? I mean, I got to say uh, the Lost World. That's my true heart. That's that's Brandon. (laughs) See, that makes sense. (laughs) That that does not surprise me because that movie is less plot and is like just excess in each scene, even if it doesn't relate to a whole story. It's meaner. It's got that gymnastics gag out of nowhere. It does. It's great. <laughs> yeah, if you add gymnastics to a dinosaur movie, I think that's Brandon Core For sure. 
Well, what is Aaron core from this year? I kind of preempted you with this question before you came on. Like it's the end of the year. It's our last episode before we do our best of 2019 stuff. And I know we both watch a lot of movies for podcasts specifically. I yeah. really appreciate y'all's horror roundups around Halloween <laughs> yeah. specifically. <laughs> Your spooktober commitment is unmatched, I think, by anyone else. So funnily enough, this is 100% true. 33% of all new movies I watched this year were done in October. I totally believe that. <laughs> I usually do about 200 plus. I'm a little light on new movies this year, but I did about like 45 of them in October. And your um, Muppets episodes right after that were a nice salve after just like horror depravity for the <laughs> amount of October. Y'all did a whole run of Muppets movies throughout November and all those episodes were really nice come down after all the evil. Yeah, we try to be- we try to do that very specifically, uh, not just for ourselves, but for our audience as well, because there is times where we'll, like we have a spreadsheet of literally um, probably like 50 or 60 months or something like that that we plan and we add to it all the time. And about half of them are horror or sci-fi related or sci-fi horror related months. So we really try to like move stuff around just so that we don't get sick of it either. We want to kind of switch up what we end up talking about. And part of that too is that uh, not to get serious all of a sudden, but one of the one of the things that gets a little complicated about horror films and genre affair, especially as we go back to stuff like the 70s and the 80s, is there's a lot of really like gross uh, stuff in them, to put it mildly. And, you know, we, we're pretty comprehensive for the most part when we talk about movies. And so sometimes it is nice to, like, not have to talk about, yeah, that's a good slasher movie, but uh, wish wish they didn't rape everyone for an hour and a half. That really sucks that everyone thought that was okay. And it's nice just to talk about, like, hey, Gonzo fucks chickens and everyone's cool with it. Anytime I watch a movie from the 70s that I haven't heard of before, I always brace myself for that. It was just, like, lawless, like, sexual assault exploitation back then real exploitation where it's like i know how we'll get some nudity in this that they'll bring the boys to the movie Ugh. uh rape scenes and advertised as such in the trailers yeah it's uh, it's tough well uh what were your like favorite discoveries this year of like movies from before 2019 and i was looking back at what i had watched this year and a lot of times i end up doing a lot of catch-up on just movies from the you know the last decades or so that i haven't seen and i was really light on it this year like the vast majority of the new movies i watched are like 2019 movies i was excited to see a lot of 2018 catch-up that i just didn't get to in the year and then like my spooktober movies even some like some uh, older movies that i was really excited about watching like uh, I, I finally saw tati's playtime which i'd been saving and I like didn't I didn't like it. Oh no, <laughs> I, I feel bad about it. This is the first place I've admitted it. Hopefully, it's a safe space, Brandon. I think that's an upcoming movie of the month article. I haven't seen it yet either, but I, I did see a couple Tati movies this year, and I thought they were pretty funny. Okay, I didn't quite fall in love with them, but you know it was good slapstick. Everything about like hearing about what the movie was about and how complicated it was, like a synecdoche New York level of complicated and like all these different things that flow together and long takes and like inspiring a lot of like Monty Python's humor. It felt like it was right up my alley. And I was kind of like, like it was was one of those movies that was two hours and 20 minutes in. I felt like I had got all I was going to get out of it and it was going to do the same trick for two hours. So then I also wanted to stop watching it, which is never a good feeling (laughs) because you're like fighting the urge to, to be done with it. But anyway, so I'm, I'm going to kind of cheat a little and just highlight two movies from Spooktober that I really, really love that you've probably already heard me talking about. And then quickly mention something that is kind of movie adjacent that I finally 
cut up with and am in love with. So two of my favorites that I'd never seen before from this Spooktober was a Fulci movie that I had never seen and honestly didn't feel as up my alley as like some other Fulci movies with like zombies and Lovecraftian stuff. Uh, it's uh, called Don't Torture a Duckling. It's kind of this almost Twin Peaksy proto Twin Peaks in like a small Italian town where like the malevolent forces are all like the Catholic Church. <laughs> and I fell in love with it. It's kind of divided into these two halves. One is like this faux supernatural element. And then the second gets into this uncovering the depravity of like this small town life one by one. That's why I kind of called it Twin Peaksy. Yeah. And I just fell in love with it. Like it was something that was almost felt like an eat my vegetables. I had heard a lot of good things about it and I want to watch more Fulci movies and just became uh, one of my favorites from Spooktober. I only know that movie as a compliment to a woman in a lizard skin and that they're both like one of the better Jalo titles. Like yeah. just as a like written on the page title. It's just fun to say don't torture a duckling. <laughs> yeah, it is. I liked a woman in a lizard skin. I don't know why I never, you know, completed the cycle and watched that one as well. I need to catch up with it. Yeah, you're you're right though. I kind of put it in the same bucket as what is it? Your your uh your vice is a locked door and only I have the key. Great title, great poster. But like okay movie. Right, exactly. So yeah, so that was great. And then I also, the other big Spooktober thing that kind of, I like highlighting it because it's the exact movie I rolled my eyes at and passed over a million times on Amazon Prime until someone recommended it was like, no, this is really, really good. And that's a Dude Bro Party Massacre 3. Apparently it's like, I never saw five second films. Mm -hmm. Like I know it's that was like a big internet thing for a long time, but it's those, all those like that collective that made it. Okay, so it's like a it's like a solid version of that like bad on purpose kind of camp. Yeah, both like it's kind of a love letter to like super cheapy '80s horror movies, while also uh, being very funny, being a, still a good like really good gore effects and stuff like that, and then also kind of indicting in some ways some of the worst like sexual politics. Of oh that hell yeah! In a, in a very like fun way, so it reminds me a lot of um, some of the Astron Six stuff. Which I've seen, I've seen a couple of their shorts. Okay, I haven't seen like a full feature. Oh, you gotta watch that. Like Manborg, I, I know I would probably really like that. Yeah, they're all really Father's Day, Manborg, and uh, especially the editor are all great. This one, I think those are more lovingly recreated without having too much of a. Well, I guess Father's Day definitely has a as a point, but I do think this one has a little bit more to say about like the sexual politics of the era while still being very funny and also. Part of the reason these things are so good is that if you did watch this in 1984 because you found it in a video aisle, I don't think you would be confused. Like, it both fits right at home in that, like, mini genre and also serves as both a parody and an indictment and, like, a comedic version of it. That sounds way more worthwhile than just, like, ribbing you about how funny it is. Like, if you're yeah. actually, like, go to the effort of recreating that stuff to actually, like, interrogate its politics, that actually makes it does sound really fun. Yeah, highly recommended. It is on Amazon. Or it might not be on Prime. It might be on Shudder if you have that. Okay. Um, and then the last thing is not so much a movie, but a uh, TV series about movies that they did have a movie about this year. But in one of those things that just completely passed me by, and a lack of awareness of it, was uh, on cinema at the cinema. <laughs> like, I didn't know about it, period, until this year. I watched the first few seasons, but I've fallen so behind. I feel like there's like so much plot on that show that I'm like kind of lost so much on. Plot. So I basically spent in between Spooktober watching when I needed a break. I would watch on cinema from the start 
And as of two weeks ago, I caught up on all 11 seasons of On Cinema, all six seasons of Decker, which, are you familiar with what Decker is? Yeah, I watched a little bit of that. It seemed like a spoof of Neil Breen's, like, uh, hacker thrillers. Uh, yeah, but it is it is Tim Heidecker in characters, Tim Heidecker, who decides he could make better movies that also, like, show the conservative agenda. Very Neil Breen. Yes. And they also have, like, tr- there's a five-hour trial. <laughs> because at one point, Tim Heidecker's character gets accused of killing 19 people at a music festival. With, like, poisoned vape juice or something like that. Poisoned vape juice, yeah. And uh, there's also, like, six three- to four-hour Oscar specials that every time just devolve into nothing about the Oscars and <laughs> Tim Heidecker's character abusing people. And then the movie that came out this year, Mr. America, and I watched all of it in the last two months. So I'm caught up. I love it. If you are a fan of movies... <laughs> Um, I, or movie criticism, or even like, you know, I kind of started as making fun of not quite the podcast that we do, but those sort of podcasts that are like people who started movie podcasts without much knowledge about movies, but just like to praise, like, I like Ghostbusters and Lethal Weapon. Those are good movies. Let's move on. And it just became this weird, insane thing that has some of the longest tales from, um, set up to punchline I've ever seen, including like cross series so i won't ruin it but there's like a an amazing joke that just is feels like what the fuck is this on a episode of on cinema and then if you're watching in order uh, basically eight weeks later on decker the joke pays (laughs) off (laughs) so i had to follow a website that had the on cinema timeline oh i need so i would watch every it's called on cinema timeline and you can follow so you watch it all in order it's absolutely worth your time. I love it so much. It's weird to like need a roadmap for something so inane, but I really feel like I do need like a guide to get back on track with it because it's really spiraled out of control since the early seasons. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah, the, we go back to those early seasons and it is just like angry people that are also sort of dumb reviewing movies. And then giving them all five bags of popcorn, <laughs> every single one. Well, in the early seasons, they sometimes would give four. And then by about, like, season three on, they never give anything less than five bags of popcorn except Tim Heidecker for Ant-Man because Greg Turkington in real life has that cameo in the movie Ant-Man. But in the on-cinema universe, Peyton Reed is on one of the Oscar specials and gives the role (laughs) to the Greg Turkington of the on-cinema universe. So in the on-cinema universe, that's that Greg Turkington on Ant-Man. And Tim Heidecker in real life has a cameo in the Fantastic Four that came out that same year. Oof. And in the on cinema universe, he bribed the director $25,000 to compete with the fact that Greg Turkington was an Ant-Man. So the only movie Tim Heidecker's ever given one star to was Ant-Man because Fantastic Four was better. And that's the kind of continuity I cannot keep yeah, up with. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. But very much... If you want to become obsessed with something that has a lot of content and it's very confusing and impossible to talk to people about it in real life, I would recommend it, I guess. Brittany's a huge fan, so I, I suspect Mr. America will be coming back up on our Best of the Year episode, too. Yeah, because that was reviewed on Swamplix, but not by you, right? Yeah, Brittany's like a huge Tim and Eric fan. Okay. When we first met, one of the first, like, going out in the world as friends activities was going to see Puss Whip Gagang together, <laughs> which was a great time. But I can't claim to match her fandom of Tim Heidecker. She's, like, on a whole other level for me. Yes, you know, like, awesome show, great job, and bedtime stories. Like, it's always been a little hit and miss for me. But there was something about 
on cinema is like as opposed to like random surrealism it's still a little bit of that but it's mixed into these like characters with a clear continuity and these like insanely long setup to punchline or details that just feels a lot different than Tim and Eric and like really its own thing. Yeah. The editing is not as aggressive too. So it's a lot easier to watch a lot of it instead of just 10 minutes at a time. So what, what were some of your favorites from this year? I'm going to stick to horror just uh, so we can continue to bond over that stuff. Yeah. Well, I also don't want to mention anything that we covered on the podcast too, just to not, you know, be redundant. Yeah. Over October, I watched Messiah of Evil for the first time. Oh, so good. I did not know what to expect from this movie, but man, just on a writing level, I am fascinated by how this movie is never boring, even (laughs) though it makes the mistakes of like every 70s movie that's boring. It does. But it has that, like, thing that I think both of us really like, which is, like, it's all about maximalism. It has so many plot threads going and executes each of them really well while being, like, visually interesting and just... It feels like it could have easily fell into one of those 70s movies that you're like, okay, three stars. And it just becomes this other, like, fascinating thing. Yeah, it's got a kind of surreal, half-remembered dream quality to it that's really hard to do on purpose. But I really do believe that it's what they were going for. And like mm-hmm. you were saying, it, the timelines are a little confused. It's it's like an epistolary movie that is twofold. Like it's this woman who's recounting this trip she had to this like coastal community where her artist father sort of disappeared and went mad. And then she's also reading his diaries in a separate timeline. So you're getting this like yeah. separate epistolary layer. And... Just his accounts of this, like, Lovecraftian ghoul outbreak that uh, has taken over the community where he went insane is so well written that you can listen to people just sort of talk about evil things in a room and just never get bored with it. Like, the production value is so cheap for so Mm -hmm. long stretches of it, but just the writing is so creepy. And then every now and then it sort of breaks into very much like post Romero zombie cannibal stuff. Uh, So you get like, you know, legit horror gags in these like movie theaters and uh, supermarkets, these sort of like mundane spaces that get like really eerie. And then at the same time, you also get these like sort of like lengthy monologues that sort of stoke your imagination to make it even weirder than what you're seeing on the screen. I was just really impressed by just how odd the movie is. So, you know, it's really funny. So that was a recommendation uh, for me by Peter, who had watched it a spooked over a few years ago. I think he recommended it to me, too. Yeah. Well, not only that. I, so I re-listened in prepping for this episode. One of the ones I re-listened to was Peter's appearance on the Cat People episode. And you guys were doing a similar thing. What was your favorite movies of 2017? And one of his two that he highlighted was Messiah of Evil. Okay. And, and was hoping that there would be a blu-ray release which there wasn't at the time he'd watched it on youtube and since then there has been which i both of us per- end up purchasing hey man i can write a four-star review of taming in the t-rex and then there will be a blu-ray uh, restoration <laughs> of some unseen cut like two years later it's yeah. kind of it's so weird how you could just like speak this stuff into the universe and then it happens yeah well we were the, the same year that we both watched the church we were like why isn't this available on hd and a blu-ray came out a month later so I mean, it takes a while to catch up with people's recommendations, but yeah, that one's been rattling around in my head and it's a, yeah. it's a short movie too. So it is. if you're ever wanting to pack something just kind of odd and like turning that Romero familiarity into something much weirder, I really liked it. 
and, and it's from the people who did Howard the Duck, which is a movie I really yeah. like. Uh, it was yeah. funny to see them do something a little more art house and still just as like maximalist, like you said. Uh, hey, Howard the Duck is also terrifying. That is the first movie that ever scared the shit out of me when I was four. <laughs> Walked in on Howard the Duck being sucked out of the portal. And, and like for a four year old, I'm like, I don't know what I'm seeing, but I'm going to have nightmares about it for months. Also, just, like, the stop-motion, like, Harryhausen stuff in that movie gets really creepy. It gets, like, the Fly 2 level, just, like, it's for children, but it's, like, very nightmarish. Like, all 80s movies, they're not really for children. Right, exactly. (laughs) They just were made with uh, PG ratings. And I also watched this movie called The Reflecting Skin from 1990. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. Speaking of movies that have, like, dodgy home distribution, um, this one... I think didn't make the jump from VHS to DVD and it finally got this like restoration this year. It's this like creepy desert town where this kid lives. His house is basically like the town gas station and it's very desolate, almost like, you know, Malik kind of like background, like a lot of like nature shots of just like emptiness. And this kid has like a very active imagination and he's like left alone a lot and like unsupervised. I think it's set in the fifties. And, you know, kids are just kind of cruel. So, like, <laughs> yep. in their boredom, him and his, like, few shithead friends who are around town, like, they torment animals and, like, sort of creep in on, like, the single women that live around town. There's this one particular widow he becomes fixated on because she's, like, beautiful and, like, vulnerable. And he's, like, an eight-year-old child. And he just becomes convinced that she's a vampire. She dresses a little gothy. Uh, she looks a little bit like Tilda Swinton in um, Only Lovers Left Alive. So he decides, like, oh, yeah, she's a vampire. She's a ghoul. And it turns out, like, someone is attacking local children. Kids start disappearing. And as the audience, we know who's doing it. Like, it's not a surprise who the killer is. But the kid is convinced that this lady is a vampire and she's the killer. And because of that, like, sort of accusation and his, like, fixation on her, bad things happen. And he allows bad things to happen in order to punish her. And it just becomes this movie about, like, how anything that's, like, vulnerable and precious and beautiful in this world will eventually become, like, crushed and destroyed in people's boredom. So it's one of those, like, not quite a horror movie horror movies. Like, the themes are just as, you know, devastating and creepy as a horror film. But it's shot through a child's imagination. He's convinced this lady's a vampire, so it might as well be, like, a straight-up horror movie. It's really hard to classify, and it's really cruel and fucked up in like that kind of gummo kind of way or like, uh-huh. you know, like Pan's Labyrinth has like a child's yeah. imagination, but it's like brutal Tideland. Even I know a lot of people hate that movie, but you know how it like sort of skirts between childhood imagination and like real life cruelty. I think this one does it in a really interesting way. Very compelling case. I add it to my watch list right now. So I don't forget. It sounds, it sounds a little bit like it owes a little bit of a debt to George Romero's Martin. Yeah, and that's a movie I don't love, but I think that they are on a similar vibe, for sure. But with my, my deal with Martin is the same thing we were talking about earlier with all 70s movies, which is the sexual assault stuff and that thing like really rubs me the wrong way. But yep, <laughs> the, the kid is a lot younger in this, but for the most part, I'd say, yeah, they are on a similar vibe. You know, especially with that like question of, like, is that a vampire? Is it a vampire, yeah. yeah. I think in here it's a lot clearer what's going on. But it doesn't make it any easier that he's convinced that this person needs to be punished. And he allows, like, really messed up stuff to happen because of that conviction. Well, like I said, anything like that that gets that strong of a recommendation, I will I will be watching it relatively soon. Because that sounds weird and awesome. And, yeah, it's something that I've never heard of somehow. Yeah, it was completely new to me, too. It looks like the director never directed anything else that I can see. So maybe that's why. 
I think it got like an ecstatic reception at Cannes, and then once it went into like wide release, nobody knew what to do with it, and it's just kind of been sitting on the shelf in the 30 years since. Uh, so I'm kind of glad it got cleaned up and like redistributed. Awesome. Speaking of recommendations, I'm very excited to get into the, our movie of the minute. Uh, so yeah, I'm so glad that you liked it. Oh, I loved it. It's <laughs> gonna be great. So yeah, we're gonna talk about a bunch of psychedelic musicals, starting with the monkeys. And all that's coming up to you right now. Hey, hey, we are the monkeys. You know we love to please. A manufactured image with no philosophies. We hope you like our story, although there isn't one. That is to say there's many. That way there is more fun. You told us you like action and games of many kinds. You like to dance, we like to sing, so let's all lose our minds. We know it doesn't matter, because what you came to see is what we'd love to give you and give it one, two, three. But it may come feature one, two, or jump from nine to five. And when you see the end in sight, the beginning may arrive. And now it's time for our movie of the minute. This is where we bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And Aaron, since you are our guest, you made me watch a movie from 1968 called Head. What is Head? Well, and the tagline was, let the monkeys give you head. Because <laughs> everyone was, everything was winky in the 60s, baby. No, so Head is a, is a movie that was made by the monkeys, essentially at the end of their popularity when they were... Uh, to quote the monkeys, cultural pariahs. They are like new kids on the block when everyone gets done with that trend or NSYNC or insert boy band here. And they made this movie with a studio called BBS, which made a few movies, especially featuring like Jack Nicholson in the in the 60s. A lot of stuff you've heard of, I'm sure, like Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces. And Bob Rafelson and Jack Nicholson basically partnered to work with the monkeys and write and direct a movie for them that was essentially what they called their way to blow up the monkeys for good. It obviously follows on the heels of the television show, and the television show was, you know, goofy Saturday morning kid stuff about a band that was basically taking off of the British Invasion stuff, and they had a lot of very catchy songs, but it was get into hijinks, eye-rolling stuff. And this is like, this movie is very hard to describe, because it's it's essentially I don't want to call it a sketch film, but in some ways it is. It just has like these discrete incidents that occur that affect the monkeys. It starts with one of them jumping off a bridge to his death while everyone watches in horror, and then they kind of deconstruct the monkeys and movies and filmmaking and the way the culture sees them, and just do a lot of other just weird odd stuff throughout so you have like sequences of them acting in a cowboy movie where one of them quits and goes to a bar where everyone derides them for no one caring about what the monkey's thinking or getting like (laughs) being like test subjects in a scientific experiment where one of them gets lost and performs a, a monkey's musical number and a dance sequence while like a giant eye looks at them through a mirror it just kind of goes like that. Stuff circles around, themes come back. There is a kind of overpresent theme of war and the military-industrial complex, including like real scenes of of, of someone getting shot in uh, in Vietnam. Yeah, in a G-rated film. This is actually uh, the first movie to ever be advertised as being rated G, like on the posters and stuff. That's how early it was in the MPA ratings. And they show that scene about 20 times. I did watch this with my five-year-old. Oh my god. Did that part affect her? No, I don't think so. You know, it's black and white, and like she's just as... But I kind of forgot that was in there, and then it happened, and then it kept happening. But she uh, she was actually super into the movie, and I was surprised. She was actually kind of playing an iPad, and I'm like, well, I gotta watch this movie for a podcast I'm doing. And 
about five minutes in, she put down the, the iPad and was like, I'm actually going to watch this. And she watched the whole thing. And about halfway through, though, she did ask if, in a very concerned tone, she's like, is this on Disney Plus? <laughs> <laughs> no, not in this world. But yeah, it, it has been kind of this mythical movie. It was very hard to get for a long time. It was released in the BBS box set that Criterion put out, but never individually. And that set always threatens to go out of print because, and the rumor has always been that, Criterion can't get the rights back to Head. And all the music featured in the movie was uh, was basically for a s- soundtrack they had made. And there's a lot of good songs, but it is very much not uh, I'm a Believer and Last Train to Clarksville. It is like, we're going to try to get real with our music a little more. And I, I know that's that's probably what they thought at the time. It's what some of the interviews said, that they were trying to prove that they were a band that could be innovative. And while I don't think even their music in this movie is anywhere near like the Beatles or the Beach Boys or, or Rolling Stones or the Who when they tried to get innovative. It is definitely a uh, sharp change from their more poppy boy band stuff. Again, I had never seen this movie. I never really heard of this movie because it was so hard to watch until about four or five years ago. And I watched it and there was about 20 minutes where I think I really liked it, but it was just so not what I was expecting that it took a little bit to click into place. And there's that sequence where they're test subjects, and then Davy Jones does that amazing like dance sequence that keeps changing, cutting rapidly between two exact dance sequences, just wearing different wardrobes. And I was like, wait a minute, I fucking love this. And then was in for the rest of it. And I, it's a movie that I constantly recommend to people, but again, just because of its availability, I, I know you... One of the first things I said to you when I'm like, have you seen... It was the first recommendation I had in the five things I sent you. And you were like, I haven't seen it. And I'm like, well, shit, it might be hard for you to see. And thankfully, I guess it was on YouTube. I actually got a copy from the library. Oh, did you? I know that that DVD must have been a rare thing because it was advertising on the DVD, like, for the first time ever in full screen. And I was like, well, that is an old copy because <laughs> no one would see that as a plus uh, in the you know the 2010s. Yeah, you would purposely not say that. Right. So I watched The Monkees as a kid. It was on Nickelodeon in the 80s, um, and I really, really liked it. Like the music, I remember my parents had a cassette that had all those, you know, the Monkees theme song, Last Train to Clarksville, and, you know, just something that I watched and listened to a lot when i was like four five and six and then basically besides you know hearing smash mouth covers or whatever and fucking shrek movies <laughs> like just haven't thought of, about the monkeys until i saw this like six years ago and it, it did at the time make me dive back into some of their later albums and like i said i think they're definitely interesting if not being as strong as some of their contemporaries that were trying to move into a little more or experiment a little bit with like the boundaries of rock music but I just I find this movie so fascinating and so entertaining and so funny uh, and so vibrant. But it really is just just anarchy put on screen. I don't know how else to describe it. And I really love. I'm sure we'll talk about this more. The way it it really made me. It it, it felt like it made time compress because they acknowledge all the worst things that people say about them and kind of accept it in this movie. Like you were put together by studio heads you have nothing original to say no one writes your movie you're there to to laugh and dance and and make people uh, forget about the war going on they are like really really tough on themselves but 
what's so funny to me as a child of like the 80s and then you know went to high school in the second boy or the boy band craze of like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys it felt like the new kids on the block and then the the second wave of that in the 90s those were the first time stuff like that had come about you know you because you just don't understand history and what had come before it and it feels like this is like a new trend and the criticisms of that kind of manufactured band dynamic are new and you're kind of living through both like the first incarnations of them and then also like the first people to to espouse those particular criticisms and what was really amazing to me was like oh yeah the monkeys weren't some beloved band in 1968 that everyone was still tapping their feet to i'm a believer they were like the fucking 98 degrees in o-town of their day like (laughs) get out of here no one cares about you you are fake and have nothing interesting to say yeah, and they rewrite their, like, poppiest, most recognizable theme song in the movie to say, like, yeah. hey, hey, we are the monkeys. We're a manufactured image with no philosophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it was just, I mean, it just blew me away. And I was so happy that, that you, A, hadn't seen this, but also that you ended up, I think, enjoying it as much as I do. I do. I mean, the only difference, really, is that the first five minutes are, like, were an immediate love for me. Well, you like watching people die on screen. <laughs> well, the actual um, assassination footage from the Vietnam <laughs> protester they show is like really rough. Well, they showed 50. Well, they show, I shouldn't say they showed 50 times, but they put it on the screen in 50 different TVs all at once. I want to get a little more into that because yeah. I listened to this podcast episode from Switchblade Sisters uh, earlier this year, and they kind of went into the history of the film a little bit. Oh, interesting. Uh, so I have a little more insight into the televisions gag. But I, I just kind of want to talk about, like, the opening five minutes yeah. of this. I guess I had been familiar with the monkeys as, like, daytime television syndication. Like you said, like, sort of a fluffy, like, very digestible version of, like, A Hard Day's Night translated into, like, Easy TV. So I didn't really expect that much out of this. I knew it was going to be fun because a couple of critics I really love have championed it. But in the opening, like, five minutes, it starts with, like, a anti-comedy gag like something you'd see in on cinema at the cinema or like awesome show great job where someone's going to introduce this band that you've paid money to see and it's like these old men in this like militaristic it looks like they're like opening a new bridge like they're going to cut the ribbon on a new bridge and they're going to introduce the band you're waiting for them and the microphone keeps feeding back and it's this like anti-comedy gag that just goes on for minutes and minutes and minutes and it keeps like delaying the payoff and then when it does pay off, one of the monkeys immediately jumps off the bridge to his own death. <laughs> yeah. I think it's Mickey Dolan's, right? And then yeah, it is. He, you know, jumps off the bridge and then halfway down to the water, this like really slow, trippy ass song called the Porpoise Song starts playing. Yep. And it was n- like nothing I had ever heard the monkeys play before. It was like actually this like really dreamy, creepy, like the kind of songs George Harrison wrote for the Beatles, like the really like loopy stuff. It reminds me a lot of if Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds never got to the chorus. Yeah, exactly. So he's sinking underwater, and then there's mermaids, and the <laughs> screen becomes solarized, which is, you know, that, like, high colorization treatment to film that just made it look, you know, basically like cliche uh, hippie psychedelia. And then it cuts from that to the grid of television screens, like you were saying, and the monkeys sort of laying out the fact that this movie's going to make no sense. Don't try to make sense of it. As soon as you start to get a handle on what's happening, we're just going to go back to the beginning again. And we realize that we are a manufactured product. We have no philosophy. We're here to just waste your time. It cuts from that to the real-life war atrocity footage. 
and them like leading a cheer W A R. What's that spell war in like a football stadium. Then it cuts from that to a concert. The audience is screaming like it's Beatlemania. It's like a bunch of like young girls screaming at the stage, bloody murder. They weren't reacting to the war footage we just saw. They're reacting to, you know, this pop band playing on the stage. And then they tear them limb from limb on the stage. They like rush the stage and literally tear them apart and tear off their clothes. And they turn into mannequins as they're being disassembled. Yep. Okay, so everything after that stretch is sort of like a sort of regimented sketch film, like you were saying earlier. It all connects in that like Monty Python kind of way where the transitions uh, sort of bleed over in like a sort of linear way. And they circle they circle back to gags, they circle back to characters, and the movie itself circles back to its ending, right? Like or its yeah. beginning. That's what really impressed me though, is that first five minutes was so disorienting and so abrasive and like willing to alienate the audience. And that is just so not what I think of the band being like the TV show was cute and it was, you know, endearing, but it was not this, like this is an assault on the audience. And I just really was not prepared to just be like floored immediately. I thought it was going to like warm up to it over time. Well, and I think that's why I probably had a, like, it was so disorienting that I, I just didn't feel like I had my bearings until about, yeah, 20 minutes into the movie. And then I kind of like, was going over other stuff I had seen, and it just, it just, you're right, everything happens so fast that there is this moment of, wait, what the fuck is this? <laughs> this is the monkeys movie? Like, what? Yeah, it feels like channel surfing or something, right? Like, anytime you feel like you got a handle on whatever gag they're pulling off, it immediately just, like, throws you off again. It's, it's like being tossed around. And there's so much stuff that, like, there's stuff that's so obviously a joke, like the football guy in the war zone, right? I don't know if it's a funny joke, but, like, it's meant to be absurdist humor. I don't mean, like, funny and, like, I don't think it's clever, but, like, it's not laugh out loud funny. And if anything, it actually feels like that gag has aged really well because of the conflation of professional uh, football and the military. But anyway, and then there's stuff that you're like, I don't know what this is exactly. Like, I don't know if I get if it's a joke or what they're trying to say, but I really like it. Like... There's the part where, like, Mickey is in the desert with the Coca-Cola machine, right? And he's, like, trying to get a Coca-Cola in the desert, and it's not working, and he's yelling. And so at first you're like, got it, it's this kind of, like, corporate logo uh, not actually being there for them or something like that. And then a tank pulls up, and then everyone gets out of the tank and surrenders to him, gives him the gun, and then he takes the tank and drive away because he's... American, so they immediately surrendered to them, even though he's alone in the desert, and they have a tank. <laughs> and a whole army, a clown car army in the tank. So, I really like that sequence, and I feel like if pressed, I could describe what they're going for, but I feel like they're going for four different things, and I'm maybe 50-60% to 60% sure of my interpretation on all four of those things. But I enjoy it! I'm not even sure they could describe it because it just feels like it was written like over a weekend. Like it feels like it was written so fast that those like synapses were firing faster than they could make linear sense out of what they were putting on the paper. And like, yeah, if pressed, you probably couldn't make some sort of like political statement out of gags like that. But it, it more like amounts to like a general collage. Like once you back away yeah. from it and see it all together, like even just that like juxtaposition of the Coca-Cola machine and the uh, American football militarism, that gives me, like, a better p 
picture than like thinking of those images in isolation. Well, that's, and that's why I think as I watch it, I enjoy it more and more because eventually all those, like it leaves an impression and a feeling, even if it's hard to sometimes put that into words right? to analyze. And so as those impressions and feelings add up and they add up very quickly because this thing is an 85 minute movie that like does not have time to spare to get to the next thing, which is another thing I really like about it. Pretty soon you just are kind of awash in this sense of, I think a combination of like anger and chaos, but from a band that is inherently fun, like the monkey. So I do think this is an angry movie, but it's an angry movie as filtered through the monkeys. Like there's not a, there's not a better analogy than this thing that actually exists. I guess if they're angry at something specifically, it's the fact that they are sort of like a frivolous distraction during Vietnam. Yeah. But I don't know if that's directly commented on or if that's just like the the vibe. Like <laughs> your stomach turns sour as soon as you're reminded of the war that's going on. And it's easy to like just get distracted by how cute and like funny the monkeys are in these like individual scenes. And then it keeps coming back to this like militaristic like undertone and you get like sick to your stomach again. So it's very cyclical in that way too. Like the tone can go from like dark to really cute and back and forth. Yeah. And they, I mean, and they said at the time, they're like, there's no confusion. Like the monkeys had been publicly rejected. We were cultural pariahs. Nobody liked us. This was our swan song. This was us saying one last gasp to do something that might be seen or heard by anyone. So it also like has a twinge of sadness, right? Like they really were fucking hated. Uh, at the time and they're like okay this is our last chance to do something and yeah they did write it over a couple weeks with jack nicholson in his like roger corman mode like when he was like uh you know know, dennis hopper just like walks through a scene and like frank zappa's hanging around like that's when jack nicholson was like a really happening dude yeah no kidding them and bob uh and they said they were it was aided by tons of lsd and marijuana that sounds like that yep uh, which I which I almost feel like I feel bad saying that because it feels reductive to be like this is a drug movie because I you know when I watched it I wasn't on drugs and I I feel like it's a five star movie whether you're uh, sober or drunk or on LSD or whatever else but I mean it does make sense a little bit right right this movie no. is wild I mean we're talking about psychedelic musicals I feel like if nothing else like sensory experiences are kind of part of that genre. You know, even that first scene where Mickey Dolenz is like floating with the mermaids and like that solarized color pattern stuff. It's like, okay, the movie knows that (laughs) its target audience is going to want to watch this like stoned out of its gourd. Uh, So it's willing to play uh, (laughs) to that, even if it wants to make larger political points elsewhere. It knows it's a movie being released in 1968. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) It is one of those things that in retrospect feels so funny. Like if you would have told me. I mean, when I was six, I wouldn't have known what some of these words mean. But just thinking back and like, hey, you know, the monkeys, like, I'm a believer, last train to Clarksville. Ah, yeah. They really were against the Vietnam War. Right. <laughs> like, those two things just wouldn't have melted <laughs> in my mind. Like, Which is something we're more used to now. Like, we have pop stars. I, I mean, just off the top of my head, st- people like Rihanna or, uh, I don't know, we're just like, we expect more... Like, people were, like, mad at, like, Taylor Swift for not having, like, a political stance <laughs> until recently. And, yeah. like, you know, in the 60s, we wouldn't have expected Taylor Swift to, like, say something political, you know? But now it's, like, the fact that she's not commenting on stuff is a big deal. But this is this is still, like, post-Bob Dylan times. I mean, 
there is a lot of like anti-war music and that being expressed at like especially Woodstock the next year and stuff like that but like you know you think of some of the biggest bands of the time and like what's the most like direct Vietnam or war reference for the Beatles like happiness is a warm gun that's probably it like it feels like there were groups that made political music like Hendrix and Dylan and some of the other ones but like it felt like you either made political music or you didn't. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's like a more of like a separate category. Yeah. So like the the our current versions are yeah everyone knows Green Day hates Republicans but we don't need Taylor Swift to say anything. Well now we expect everyone to have yeah, an opinion we expect on everyone. It. Yeah. And honestly, that's not a bad thing. Like we especially since like a lot of younger people aren't going to seek out Green Day. <laughs> I don't know. That's not like my. I mean, point. I hope they don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Please don't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just funny to me. Like. I didn't expect that out of this band or this movie. No. And yeah, this is like just more of an art film than I expected too. I mentioned that Switchblade Sisters episode earlier and they explained something about the structure of it that I think like helps it make sense. One of the first screenings of the film was at Andy Warhol's factory in New York. Yeah. And what they did was they set up loops of the film playing on TVs throughout this like warehouse so you would walk into a room and a segment of the film would be playing. So you're sort of like walking through the movie and it's like this circular maze. So you would get back to the beginning and the two, like the, the back end and the front would match up. So you could just like live in the movie and like walk through it. And it would just be this never ending loop, which, you know, makes total sense. Cause the movie sort of plays like an art installation. The more you think about it, cause it is like a closed loop from the beginning to the end. Yeah, the only difference between the beginning and the end is that at the end, all the monkeys jump off the bridge, right? <laughs> yeah, Mickey was a leader. <laughs> yeah, he was the leader. You find out, you kind of get a wider shot and realize the other three were right behind him, ready to take the leap. It does remind me a little bit, do you, do you know what First Avenue is? No. So it's a very famous concert venue. It's here in Minneapolis. It's where Prince shot Purple Rain. Okay. It was, it was kind of known as Prince's Club. One thing they do that's a lot of fun is that before concerts, they usually show like a movie on all the screens and then just have unrelated music playing like, and they have screens everywhere. They usually show things that are visually interesting, but obviously because they have other music playing, not something that like you're going to be paying attention to in any capacity. So they'll throw in like a break in two or something like that. Um, and this, this really feels like something that I'm sure they have played before. That this is, is like, perfect for that. Perfect for something like that. Like it gets people excited. Everyone gets interested in it. And then you, you literally start asking people and, and this has happened to me many times at first Avenue. Like people start going, what is this movie? I want to go home and watch this movie. Yeah. I think this would be like a good party movie too. Even with the sound on. Yeah. You, you could have a conversation and like turn to talk to somebody and sort of lose track of it. And then turn back to the screen. And like, wait, what the fuck's happening now? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's constantly shifting to the point where it's like never, it never stops being interesting from beginning to end. Like it doesn't hit a snag pacing wise. Yeah. I also like this feels again, sort of silly to say, but I do feel like there's so many examples in this movie of the monkeys coming down on the right side of history. <laughs> like <laughs> they are very anti-cop, which I supportive of. Yep. They're doing that. Like, american indian depiction of indigenous people and mickey walks off the set in protest yep there's a lot here that other movies made in a similar time or the 70s 80s or 90s or now for that matter like aren't on the right side of history for and it feels like at the very least they're pretty cool dudes that i want to talk to more and hear more uh subscribe to their newsletter as the saying goes <laughs> 
What were what were some of your other favorite sequences besides the first five minutes that you really enjoyed? I mentioned the the kind of uh, cutting black and white dance sequence where it was inversed and, and like I think that is just so visually impressive. And it's kind of simple, right? They're wearing like white clothes against a black backdrop and black clothes against a white backdrop and it alternates in sync, like a strobe light effect. I remember just being blown away by that. This time too, it it feels simple, right? Like you just have these two people wearing different outfits do the same dance and cut between them. But there is something about the way it's done, the way it's presented that makes it feel like you are watching some insane stunt that took months to put together. And uh, Davey's dancing with Tony Basil of uh, Omiki yeah. fame, which is pretty amazing. There's a lot of cameos. You mentioned Zappa, Terry Gar's in this for a yeah. little bit. Not, I mean, that's not even talking about like Nicholson and Dennis Hopper just being in the background. Yeah, and there was like a, some gag with a, a famous movie star's hair. Like they all get sucked into a vacuum out of his hair. Oh, that's right. I yeah. do not know who that is. Like <laughs> it was like some like 60s reference that just like went way over my head. So there might, might even be more cameos lurking in here that are just like not in my uh, zeitgeist. Oh, and there's a boxing match with, like, Sonny Liston, too. There, yeah, there's a lot in here. <laughs> I will say I maybe my favorite scene that we haven't called out, and again, this is very front-heavy for me because, like, the first 10 minutes was just when I was, like, bewildered by how amazing this movie is, uh, was just the silent scene of this woman sample-kissing all of the monkeys. Oh, yeah. No explanation. This woman just, like, full-on makes out with them systematically one by one, almost if she's, like, evaluating which one of them is the best at making out. And no comment is made on it. It's just got this kind of like general free love vibe and it's very intimate and like kind of, I don't know, kind of heated. And then it just ends without any explanation other than like maybe the fact that every girl in America at one point uh, and, you know, a lot of men in America wish that they could have done that. There actually is one gag at the end of that because you're right. They don't talk. This woman just they all get out of bed. She walks up to kiss them all. And at the end, they walk past Peter and he goes just goes, well, and she goes even <laughs> forgot about that stinger yeah which is a very funny stinger like uh because you you're right it's three minutes of silence and you're just like what is this <laughs> and then yeah like you mentioned the the idea of like so many different people in america fantasizing about make out with the monkeys and i'm sure it probably was even more resonant in 1968 because i don't know how many people i grew up with that were like oh i bet lance bass is the best kisser and i bet that you know just like I had friends that would fight about that kind of stuff playfully. So I'm sure it was like solving a mystery that probably got talked about. Like you said, I think what I really appreciated about it was that it's a genuinely horny moment. It is. This is not a horny movie in general. Like maybe the mermaid stuff is a little like sensual and there's like some belly dancing, but that stuff to me is like pretty kind of standard, you know, eye candy performances there's something about the sensuality in that scene that actually like cuts through as like a genuine feeling that I did not expect, especially since everything else is so zany and loud <laughs> to have this like quiet, horny moment at the top of the film. Uh, well, it comes right after the, I'm glad I am glad that like my, uh, my daughter was still on her iPad because like <laughs> there's, there's the person getting murdered followed by that. And I was like, wait, what the fuck do I, have I, have I forgotten how like G rated this movie is? And then it, Gets still odd, but less less of that stuff. Not less of the the murders. Right. No, the murders will come back. The murders murders are going to pop back up anytime they need a couple frames of film to fill. So I, I guess just generally though, I'm like glad you made me watch this finally. I, I, there's two critics I really love just in general that 
have championed this before. Uh, April Wolf of Switchblade Sisters. And then Nathan Rabin wrote about this for the Dissolve, which is the website that. Yeah, I think that's where I heard of it. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, it took me, you know, it takes so long to catch up with anything now just because there's yeah. so many choices. So much stuff. But yeah, I'm just, I'm really glad you finally made me watch it because it's something that I was immediately just sort of floored by the audacity of it. Yeah. And then it never really lets up in any kind of disappointing way. Like you said, they continuously make up for things that you're like, oh, this is where they're going to fuck up. This like Native American segment is where they're going to like yeah. drop the ball. <laughs> and then they really like turn everything on its head uh, in a in a really you know impressive way. Well, and that's why it's such an easy movie to be the type of movie that when someone asks you to guess on their podcast and to recommend a movie, it was the first one I sent you. Because it's an easy movie to be evangelical about. Because A, not a lot of people have seen it mainly due to its uh, unavailability for almost its entire release. And then B, if you haven't seen it, 100% guarantee it's not what you're expecting. Like, no one thinks when they go monkey's film, even if they know it's psychedelic and weird, that this is what it's going to be. One thing that makes a movie fun to be evangelical about and talk to people about and recommend to people is that at the very least, if someone likes it or doesn't like it, at least it's not going to be something they expected or have seen before. So at the very least, it has a element of surprise that is going to probably stay with people to some capacity. So, also from 1968, the Beatles had a movie. So, I I thought that this would be a nice pairing just because, you know, the monkeys cannot escape being compared yeah. to the Beatles. No. Uh, I will say this. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. But somehow they had the more psychedelic movie, I think. The monkeys did. I think that's true, too. It's a lot, it's a lot more daring formally than this one. But Yellow Submarine is a movie I've seen twice before this conversation in two completely different venues. And I was kind of amazed by it both times in the kind of the same way that I was amazed by the monkeys movie. I don't think it's as good of a movie. <laughs> I'll say that. I think head is my favorite movie <laughs> we're talking about today, but mine too. something about yellow submarine worked for me in two completely different ways. The first time I saw it, I was on mushrooms in Memphis with a bunch of friends. Yeah. Uh, we spent a whole day in a house, just like acting like children. Hey, look, I still have a special connection to Fantasia 2000 because of mushrooms. Right. So <laughs> I get it. And it was on a VHS copy on a broken television where the colors were just wrong. Like the screen was like bifurcated in this like wrong way. Did the mushrooms correct it for you? So you just watched a normal movie? I don't know what the mushrooms did, but they made it memorable. I definitely didn't sit down and watch the film, obviously. Like I was a little distracted, but uh, it was playing. And uh, every time I looked at the screen, I was like, what is that? The second time I saw it was, you know, with an adult beverage, you know, one one. <laughs> sensible beverage last year <laughs> for its 50th anniversary they re-released it to theaters so i saw it on a nice screen with like a surround sound i was i think if not the only person in the theater like maybe one other person was in there it felt like watching it alone in like a home so just a big screen. tv yeah exactly yeah and i was really just amazed by the animation in it 
Yeah. This is a movie that doesn't need to be as good as it is. Basically, the Beatles were like contracted to do three films with Apple Films. That was like the record label's film production arm. The first two were Hard Day's Night, which is a classic. Help, which is like head, but not good. I've never seen Help. I actually was curious after watching this movie to if it was worth checking out. It's, it's kind of a mess. It feels like them vacationing and sort of filming a movie uh, in their off time and like basically like rushing through it so they can get back to like having fun. It, yeah. It's not it's not as good as A Hard Day's Night. And then this one, which they you know were obligated to put in a third movie but didn't want to be involved. So the Beatles don't provide their own voices. There's like voice actors impersonating them. They show up for like a When I'm 64 performance, like at the very end of the film. Yeah. And it it feels like just like a sort of afterthought kind of thing. But the animators who, you know, put this thing together actually put in some really interesting work, I think. It's psychedelic animation in that like Fantastic Planet sense. Yeah. It's a far off fantasy world. It's very allegorical. Like it did remind me a lot of Fantastic Planet. Was this before Fantastic Planet? Yeah, it, pre- it, was, it predated yeah. that, yeah. and it predated um, Terry Gilliam's Flying Circus shorts, which I think yep. pull a lot from this, oh. too. <laughs> Hold on. I actually think Terry Gilliam copied wholesale <laughs> from this movie, having seen it now. I love Terry Gilliam. I love Monty Python. But, man, those opening like sequences, it was like, oh, well, I can see number one inspiration for Terry Gilliam spilling out all over the screen right now. Yeah, and it's kind of like a mix and match thing, too. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's just hand-drawn, colorful animation like Fantastic Planet. And then it'll split into those Gilliam collages with, like, real-life yeah. photographs. And what really surprised me was, like, the GIF repetitions. Like, if you want to talk about, like, yeah. being prescient, it's the same image looping over and over again. Which, you know, is like an old, like, zoescope, kind of the the birth of filmmaking kind of thing but it's kind of come back around now to where the way we look at images online where we'll watch like a two second video on loop and like a gif image is pretty similar to how this movie animates stuff except it's a background environment so it's looping but you're moving through it in this like sort of linear way and i, I think it is genuinely trippy yeah the fantastic planet setup for the plot as thin as it is is like there's this band, the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, provides music in Pepperland that keeps everyone feeling good love vibes. And these like fascist characters come in. They're called the Blue Meanies, and they turn everything into stone and like get rid of music and art and creativity and bring everything to a halt. I'm assuming uh, the other person that got a lot of influence or other people that got a lot of influence from this was, uh, I imagine, Sid and Marty Craft. Oh, for we're sure. Very, we're very excited about this movie. Yeah, it feels like an animated version of Puff and Stuff. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, one person escapes and tries to find a band of musicians to bring back love and music and art to this like sort of frozen wasteland. And they find the Beatles, who arrive via a yellow submarine and restore order and peace and creativity and get rid of the blue meanies through love and music. It's kind of a basic thing. What we were talking about earlier with head, like there's those sort of like eye candy, psychedelic experiential sensory like indulgences. I think this movie is purely that like it's Beatles music videos with like animated flourishes to keep your eyes busy while you listen to the great music. So it's not, it's not as like formally or as politically daring as head in any way. It's definitely not as specific in its politics, but just in a terms of like pure craft, especially seeing it in that like 4k restoration with like a good sound system last year. Yeah. I was just really impressed by it. Uh, what did you think? I liked it quite a bit. 
you're right to call out how helpful the fact that it has Beatles music in it is. Because I watched this, uh, I bought the, on your recommendation of how gorgeous the restoration looked, I bought the Blu-ray and I have a projector and a really good sound system in my basement. So I I watched it on that. And so the opening chords when the first song comes on, which is Yellow Submarine, like truly kind of took my breath away in that moment. And that's a song that generally I used to hate and now I think is pretty good. But like, it's not one of my favorite Beatles songs, but that opening chord with that imagery on screen, like really like sent chills down my spine and having those songs interspersed with these like great psychedelic visuals and like proto music video sequences are really, really entertaining. It's nice that you called out the fact that like the Beatles didn't provide their own voices, which really is kind of a a shame because the Beatles are amazing comedians. Like you call it hard days night. They're very good at, deadpan line delivery they really have that like monty python british sense of humor and i do think their voice actors while there is some amusing uh dialogue in the movie aren't as good as delivering a punchline or a setup as the actual beatles are like they are true performers in every sense of the word and that's honestly my biggest knock of the movie is that the visuals are great the story's fine the animation's really well done getting to hear Beatles music, including one of my favorite, or I, sh- I mean, one of my top 50 Beatles songs. Like it's hard to say one of my favorite right. Beatles songs, but uh, which is Hey Bulldog, which is only from this movie. Like, I love that song. I love that sequence. I got to admit, this is kind of like a shameful ELO type of admission. My favorite Beatles songs over time have become the early pop band version. Interesting. Of like basically when they were the monkeys, <laughs> Let's talk about that for a sec, because I'm interested to hear where you fall in the Beatles. If you had told me, and I don't mean this as an insult, but if you had told me that you just didn't like the Beatles music, that wouldn't have shocked me either. I like to think I'm not a contrarian. <laughs> I don't think you're I don't think you're contrarian. I think, like I said, your taste is so specific and hard to predict that I would I would never think you would dislike something because it's popular. Uh, quite the opposite. But I, I just, especially with music, I would never dare to predict what 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 you would enjoy, except knowing uh, that we both had some very similar uh, CD collections in the late 90s and early 2000s from other right, conversations right. that we've had. I actually used to, I shouldn't say dislike the Beatles, but the Beatles were like nothing to me. I didn't grow up with them, and the songs I heard, like, She Loves You, Yeah, 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 just felt so basic to me like i only heard a lot of that early pop stuff and they just been with me my entire life as a kid like so you you have no personal connection to it you know it's music that like gets parents and people your parents age excited but like it doesn't feel personal doesn't feel that interesting it just feels like and it definitely doesn't feel like innovative because it's just movie music that's existed since you've been born and you've heard tons of things that are like sound like that and it wasn't until I was in college that the Rolling Stones put out their top 500 albums of all time that I decided I'm going to go through and like listen to all these from front to back. Because this is like post-Napster Kazaa era where I had stopped buying CDs, which I just downloaded songs I liked, and I kind of stopped listening to the album as a format. So I wanted to kind of get back into that, and I did it by buying like the, the top 20 on that list, which are like five Beatles albums. Like Sgt. Pepper's Revolver, Abbey Road, all the ones. Yeah. As I'm listening to those, I am like, 
this is what the Beatles... Like, I had never heard half of these. Like, I never heard Day in a Life. You know, I'd heard, like, with a little help from my friends and some of those other ones that were just omnipresent in pop culture. But since I never sought out anything Beatles... And then I became, like, (laughs) as dumb as it is for, like, someone in 2003 or 4 to become obsessed with the Beatles when they're, like, 20. But, like, there was a time where I was just listening to, like the back half of Abbey Road over and over because it still felt like nothing I had heard to that point, which is why there is a part of me that kind of really likes, uh, it's not a good movie, but I kind of like uh, Yesterday, the Danny Boyle movie, because I kind of uh, relate to characters in that movie that are wowed by hearing Beatles for the first time. (laughs) And then I finally went back to their pop stuff that I had passed over even a couple of years after that and bought like all their early albums and kind of refell in love or fell in love with those songs for the first time and appreciated the craft as not like these standards that just were omnipresent and just were existed. And what's so funny is that like yellow submarine was, was one of those songs that I heard like people that were in plays with me sing all the time and just like, I hated it. And the first time this movie had a big release was in 1998, 1999. They did a remaster on VHS and I think, like, either DVD or Laserdisc. And, like, every Target was showing scenes from this. And a bunch of my friends were really into it. And they were bought the VHS and were singing the songs. And that really turned me off and left an impression in my head that this movie was bad. Even when I re-got into the Beatles. Or got into the Beatles later on in my life for the first time. But you don't, you know that thing where sometimes, like, at an early age you decided something wasn't for you? And then, like, nothing can really shake you out of it. That was me in Yellow Submarine, even post-falling in love with the Beatles. So, I'm A, I'm really glad that I finally watched this because I really liked it. But I was surprised that this wasn't terrible because I had decided <laughs> that in 1998 and just always assumed that was the case. But I'm interested to hear your kind of take on the Beatles because I feel like... I can't imagine too many people loving this movie if they don't have some affection for the song. Well, I came to them very late, too. Like, I I think it was late in high school. I had this friend who, you know, his dad was into, like, very, like, stony baloney rock music from the 70s and 60s. And he had, like, this, like, CD collection at home of that stuff. But my friend, who's still a good buddy of mine, didn't listen to any music from like 1980 till the present. Like he just like didn't know anything mm-hmm. modern where I was the exact opposite. I had friends like that who like, if, if it wasn't like a CD in the seventies, they didn't touch it. Right. And I had the exact opposite effect where like my parents were really young when they had me and the music that was popular when they were kids was like stuff like Madonna and you know, um, like Michael Jackson and stuff like that. And that was the stuff I was more familiar with. I didn't know the sort of like back catalog of like rock gods, you know? So I would bring in, you know, new weird music that I was into, like punk stuff, and, you know, show him what music sounded like currently. (laughs) And he would uh, trade me, it started off, he would trade me just a Beatles album for a while. I think my uh, interest started with the Number Ones uh, compilation. Oh, yeah, I remember that album. That came out when I was in high school, uh, and I was like, that was the first time I ever really heard the Beatles. And then uh, my buddy would, you know, bring in these, like, an album at a time. So like I'd hear rubber soul for a week for the first time. And then I'd hear the revolver and like work my way into their like more psychedelic stuff, the kind of stuff that's in yellow submarine. So that was what I was more into at first. And then over hurricane Katrina in 2005, I stayed with a girlfriend in Memphis at her parents' house. And they had the anthology documentary that was like, Oh yeah. It was long. It was like this really long 
Yeah, I, I bought that. No, I bought it in college and watched the whole thing. So, yeah, like, instead of watching the news about, like, the city drowning over and over again, I would watch this anthology documentary, and it blew my mind because it had all these tracks uh, that weren't on the proper albums. Like, I yeah. I never heard uh, Paperback Writer or John and Yoko, oh, yeah. like, all these kind of, like, B-cuts. And I also, in that experience, gained this respect for their early period that I didn't really understand where they were coming from. Yep. Like you were saying, it's so familiar. Like you don't really think about its time and context. I mean, obviously they're not the most creative band in the world. They were basically just playing black music and getting all the accolades for it. But thinking of them as this garage band that got tight and like weird by playing these like speed induced 12 hour sets in Germany. And like, yeah, and especially George's guitar lines in those early like rock records are so different than anything else in that sound. And just over time, I've gotten less and less patience for this like loosey goosey, stony baloney, all you need is love stuff. And I've really latched on to just how tight and memorable those pop records are and how like, those guitar lines are like some of the best melodies that have ever been applied to that kind of music. And I guess just because my background and like my appreciation of music is very punk focused which is you know mm-hmm. short three minute songs with one idea <laughs> and you sort of like knock it out and move on to the next one uh, i really appreciate that quality in their early records and yeah i can listen to like chains or babies in black and stuff like that and i never get tired of it where like the stony baloney stuff i still like it i'm not gonna say it's bad music and I, i've really enjoyed listening to the music in this a lot especially with the visualizations but to me it's not as Enjoyable. Like, I'm not going to throw that on to listen to by myself as, as often. So I, I'd be interested to, and I don't want to completely derail us, is the, what you define as stony baloney. Because, like, I've never been a big fan of, like, I am the walrus or strawberry fields forever. But, like, give me the back half of Abbey Road. And, like, even on the White Album, like, a lot of stuff that's kind of derided is goofy and just, like, stuff they should be, uh, should have moved on from by that time. Like everybody has something to hide, but me and my monkey, like, I, I love that song. It's a catchy fucking yeah. song. Like it's playful too. It's, they have a sense of humor about it. It's not like all, you know? Yeah. The only album that I can say, I almost like back to front dislike, give or take like two or three songs is let it be. And I feel like that is the most like meandering almond brothers, stony baloney stuff. For sure. And honestly, if I think this movie has a problem, but you like like Eleanor Rigby, right? Eh, it's okay. <laughs> it's not my favorite. All right, <laughs> but okay. I think if this movie does have a problem though, it is that like Eleanor Rigby, all you need is love unrushed pacing. I can get past the like Beatles impersonators. Like they're working with what they're working with, you know? Yeah. It's not their fault, but like even their voices are so iconic. I think it's a little, it's distracting. I'm not going to say it's not distracting, but the seventies in particular, I think because everyone was a little high (laughs) is not rushed to get anywhere. And this movie, even though it's relatively short, has this like stony baloney sense of pacing. Agreed. And it kind of wears on you after a while. It feels way longer than it actually is. I do like their commitment to bits though. And I don't even know if that's what they defined it as, but I like that. Like, when I'm 64 spends its back half counting down from one all the way to 64 to show you how long a minute is, which is like yeah. comedic gold, but also torture. That's like some wonder shows and shit. Yeah. That, that feels like some anti-comedy shit. Yeah. But uh, I mean, thankfully when I'm 64 is a relatively okay song. And I, I don't like, okay. Even you asked me like, do I like Eleanor Rigby? Yeah. It's a good song. I like all the songs in this movie. Hey, Bulldog is actually one of my favorites. It's, it's a rockin' number. And it feels like, 
you know, kind of a rollback to that time. Well, you know, the first time I was exposed to it is that fucking Beatles rock band game that came out like, for like Wii and Xbox 360. And I never heard Hey Bulldog because I didn't have who would buy this soundtrack because it's Yellow Submarine and then the four songs you've never heard of right. like and that you can get other 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 places. And uh, Hey Bulldog came up. I'm like, what? This this is an amazing Beatles song. Why don't I know this song? Where is this from? But I don't know. I have that kind of roadblock with a bunch of bands too, like uh, Radiohead and The Who in particular. Like I really like their like guitar rock records, and yeah. I kind of lose them once they get into like the weird stadium stuff a little bit. I agree on both. Okay, ones. good. <laughs> I feel very alone with that stuff sometimes, but um, I mean they're good bands. Just saying stuff that's only going to turn people against. Right, right, right. (laughs) Well, okay. I think just in general, maybe there's not even that much to talk about in this movie other than like, it's impressive, like craft wise, how much psychedelic art this predates. Like it might not be the best example of like the GIF stuff or the Fantastic Planet creations or the Terry Gilliam collages. But it is like a inventive film in that way. Like it, it predicts where that stuff was going before anything else got there. Well, and also I would say it less predicts it. Or maybe it does predict it a little bit, but also inspired it. Like um, there's a lot of Pixar guys and animation guys who talked about how this movie's biggest influence was in animation in general. Because it didn't pioneer a lot of these techniques, but it was a movie that based on the fact that it was doing this very interesting animation stuff, both in the psychedelic visions and the like live action pastiches and stuff like that that it was doing was at the very least shot out to a much larger audience than anything that had done that kind of stuff before because of its association with the Beatles. So there's a ton of people who were influenced by this movie that became major forces in like modern day animation. That makes sense. At the end of the day, all that is in service of just like giving your eyes something to gaze at while you listen to Beatles songs and whether or not like every song on here is your favorite Beatles song. It's still the fucking Beatles and the movie easily skates by on that. I think we'll get into this more with the last movie we're talking about, but like the music needs to be good. If you're going to listen to this much of it. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I had a pleasant experience with that. I can't wait to talk about that because I feel like even though the movie, the music in the next movie we're about to talk about is not good, it does uh, match the insane excess as the rest of the movie. And so, you know, we talk about so, uh, so bad they're good movies, which is not something I generally relate to. But I do agree that you can get a ton of enjoyment out of movies for reasons different than the writers and directors and actors planned for, right? Yeah, um, I don't think that's because they're bad. I think I'm getting the same level of enjoyment as I'm getting from them as quote unquote good movies, but I'm just enjoying them for their idiosyncrasies. And I do think the music in the next movie, <laughs> I enjoy for the same reason. I think when we talk about like so bad it's good, we usually what we're saying is like outsider art. It's like yeah. art that you know achieves something entertaining in a non-professional way. And it's just like an an unusual way that we don't really know how to deal with it. I agree with the next movie being a really interesting piece of outsider art. It's just the music to me is just so aggressively unenjoyable. (laughs) Um, So I I guess we should just like roll right into it. Yeah. Let's roll into it. What did you make me watch for this? So I made you watch the apple, which is the infamous Canon musical by uh, Golan Globus. That is 
their attempt to tap into kind of psychedelic musicals and just capitalize on i mean that's that's all what canon was right like what is big what can we rip off and one of the reasons that peter and i really love a lot of canon films is that in their attempt to rip off something from these outsiders of hollywood they created these very unique art objects that are in some ways more interesting and enjoyable than what they were attempting to rip off at the time but the Apple's also one of those movies that has a very tough history of watching. It was actually planned as Peter and mine's like sixth or seventh episode on the podcast we do. And it was taken off of streaming and everything was out of print right before we were about to do it. And we had to pivot. And then years later, it finally became available on Blu-ray again. So I watched it for the first time about a little over a year ago. And watching it for this show was my third time watching it in a very short period of time. I've already talked about on this show how much I enjoy maximalism. I enjoy movies that throw everything that they can. Like, they understand that they're movies, and they have so many ideas that they're able to do because they're like, well, it's a movie. We can just do it. We can put it on screen if we create the special effects or whatever it is. We don't need to be bound in by reality or consistency or anything else. And sometimes that's done purposefully. Movies like House or Gokei, Body Snatcher from from Hell are really good examples we've talked about on my show. And sometimes it's done in this way that is like as entertaining and enjoyable as when it's done intentionally, but just feels like, again, not to use the, the drug reference again, a bunch of people on cocaine <laughs> yelling out ideas as fast as they can and everyone writing them down and trying to find a way to put them all on screen. So the Apple is a musical about like this uh, fascistic society that uh, rules people through a almost like proto-American idol where every hour everyone has to watch this show where they have bands come on all in support of their like state-run god called the BIM. (laughs) And no matter what you're doing, you have to watch the show or dance to it, uh, which gets very funny later on, the extremes that that goes to. And you end up having this act who ends up like the retelling of the Bible, which it also is, like the the book of Genesis. One of them becomes very famous. Uh, The apple is the contract to become famous while helping the fascistic state rule over everyone. And then eventually, uh, through her former singing partner, realize that the BIM is not the way. (laughs) And deciding to side with the hippies who live in the park. 100% 100% true. And then uh, eventually fighting back in some ways against the Bimmers. And spoiler alert, getting taken by God in a Cadillac to heaven. At the Out end. of fucking nowhere. Out of nowhere. But it's like that throughout the movie. Like, I described this movie once as like someone uh, left the uh, an entire costume department for a major studio unlocked. And they're like, how do we make a movie out of this? <laughs> because it's not worried about consistency. Uh, It's not worried about a look. It's just all about how do we make everything going on at the screen at all times uh, have like visual flair and pop and other things. And so this movie takes place in 1994. It's made 1980. If you forget that it's made 1994, don't worry. (laughs) The movie will try to remind you about it as much as possible, including having characters say that future technology exists Because, of course, it does. It's 1994. And there's a whole song that's about uh, how big show business is in 1994. So much so that the chorus is called, Life is Nothing But Show Business in 1994. 
And if you're like, that's a very clunky line, <laughs> it is. But I think that represents in some ways the movie as a whole. Because the right way to do that would be life is show business in 1994. But they added three extra words. And the song itself feels like it's compressing the meter to fit all those words in suddenly. And it doesn't match the rest of the song. And that's like a perfect encapsulation of the movie as a whole. It just is like, I don't have time to think this through. This is what I want to express. And it's like, well, should we maybe think about editing or trimming it down? Like, nah, leave it in. Let's just make it as long as possible. And we just want people to know it's 1994. That's the important part. Not about how how the song works. <laughs> and so that's why I like the music too, uh, in that it just is so oppressively excessive and over the top. And it's not like good music, but the sequences where people are yelling, Hey, 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 the BIM is the way at you over and over are just compelling. And the whole thing wraps up in this package that just feels like an alien did 50 years worth of cocaine and like, went to Studio 54 once and, like, decided to make a, a musical about it. I mean, th- this is 100% a cocaine movie. Like, if Yellow Submarine and Head are acid movies, this one's, like, definitely the cocaine yeah. movie of the batch. But <laughs> yes. it's, it's no less psychedelic than the other two. It's got a uh, maximalist visual style to it. It fits right in with the other two movies. It's just the drug is off. It's much more uh, aggressive as opposed to laid back. That is true. I really just can't get over the music. Like... On a visual level, this is so much my shit. Every single frame is filled with so much glitter and drag makeup and like cheap props and costuming. It reminds me of that backlot scene in Pee Wee's Big Adventure where he's like walking yeah. by like every single movie all at once. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great call. Like It's like they made a movie out of that. Right. And it's so fun. Every character is basically Chris Tucker from The Fifth Element. <laughs> There's all these like futuristic drag queens walking around in this like... You know, alternate version of 1994 is a lot more fabulous than the one we actually lived through. Although, like, like I think we would probably both agree, it is weird that not everyone is singing uh, Lump and Peaches. Yeah, I mean, those are memorable pop songs. I can only sing you, I think, the Hey, 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 Bim's on the Way song. The only other one that really stuck out to me was the one with this, like, vague metaphor about how America is a speed junkie and she needs to get her fix. Oh, yeah. Which I really like the Leather Daddy vibe of that costuming in that segment, too. So I really like the Apple song. I love the whole staging of the Apple number. It's like this Satyricon Fellini vision of hell. It looks so good, and it's like, why am I not enjoying this? And it's because the song, I don't know, just didn't do it for me. That's actually the only song of the movie that I feel is legitimately catchy and good. Without, like, some level of irony that I'm enjoying it. (laughs) But the song that is one of my favorites is there's a full-on fucking Dewey Cox song in this movie. Like, have you seen Walk Hard? Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, in my dreams, blowing me some kisses. There's a song in this movie that the refrain is, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, long pause for you (laughs) while characters are having sex yeah the pantomime sex in that is really funny too because it's very like there used to be this old-fashioned thing like called like a sex show where people were like pantomime sex instead of like a stripper act yeah and it's just like so clinical and not sexy (laughs) like they're posing (laughs) in these like positions like running through the full karma sutra playbook but it's like people who just met (laughs) like there's like no chemistry at all and it's this really funny like (laughs) stage play like choreography 
of like a bunch of sex positions. And like I said, with that like monkeys scene where she like makes out with the whole band, like that has like this intimate yeah. horniness to it. There is nothing horny about this scene where everyone's no. fucking. No, except again, the lyrics are so goddamn on the nose. Oh yeah, which I feel like. But I, I actually think it's them trying to be clever. Like I think the I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming for you. That's funny. Yeah, that's funny. Also, that should have been a disco song too, though. That is uh, more, more, more. How do you like it? Or that kind of thing. Where I think this whole movie would have been improved if it was bad disco instead of bad rock and roll. I don't know if this is rock and roll music. Like all the music was written by George Clinton of uh the parliament no it's not the same george clinton what no there's a guy named george clinton who writes bad movie music holy shit really that popped up for me i think the first time i saw that was like in a john waters movie i'm like george clinton is writing the music for this john waters film that's so weird but no there's this whole it's like this white guy who like writes bad movie music there's nothing funky about this guy (laughs) he wrote the score for Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, Mortal Kombat, and a sequel, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, and Showtime series, The Red Shoe Diaries. (laughs) Every time I see his name, I get really excited, and then I remember, like, oh, no, there's, like, a less interesting George Clinton out there. I had no idea. I thought it was George, because this felt like George Clinton put in a couple days' work tops, and they gave him the lyrics for it, and he's like, sure, whatever. But you're actually blowing my mind a little. Maybe it, it, sh- it shouldn't have blown my mind that this is not that George Clinton. <laughs> it definitely doesn't have like a funk quality to it. I wish you remembered the verses of Life is Nothing Like Show Business in 1994. Because that does have a little <laughs> funk groove to it. That scene reminded me of that uh, sequence in Xanadu we talked about at length. Where they tried to meld like old Hollywood musical glamour with like new wave punk. And it like just doesn't oh, yeah, that's gel. So funny. Yeah, like you said earlier, like they're forcing this like rhyme that uh, just has too many words and just never comes together, which I thought was funny, but I don't know. There's just something about like the earnestness and like sexuality of rock and roll that just doesn't come through here. But in fairness, right, like it is a fascistic society forcing people to listen to the music. That is true. Maybe I should like rewatch it with that in mind. Like they very clearly are. So uh, Bibby, who's the person who they kind of make a star because she takes a bite of the apple and her partner are singing like a love folk song, which is not a good love folk no, song, it's but it's bad. like, <laughs> it's, but it's pleasant. And they sabotage that in favor of their music. So they are literally forcing people to listen to this, to their music. And anything that falls outside of that gets destroyed. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's the tool of fascism, bad music. I mean, that might be interesting if there was like actual good music in the movie, like competing, like that was being squashed out by this. They got the other George Clinton. Right, right, right. The two George Clintons like fighting, <laughs> or, like competing songs. But instead, it's not only that you have to listen to this, like, it almost sounds like an ACDC cover band kind of that like raspy voice, but without any conviction. That's only for the first That bim's on the way. Well, that one does haunt yeah. you more than the other ones. How long did it take you to realize they were saying bib and not like eight other words that might I thought be it was bib. I thought it was bib, Okay. Too. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. I have like, it's funny, uh, my notes for when I first watched this movie, um, originally because we did a joke episode on it on my podcast. That was like a good year or two ago, right? Yeah. It was a joke because Peter had still had no access to it and I finally saw it. So it was like a 30-minute thing. But when I was looking back over my notes from that, 
which was the first time I watched it, um, I have like three different things listed for BIM until I actually get to BIM. There's like BIB, BIP. Like, I have no idea what they're saying. And the opening course is just, hi, 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 where is oh, hi. It's like, what? I think they have to be referencing something. Like, it's like when a movie references, like, Malt Bisme. Like, there's like a joke in there. And there is like a um, I can't find musical it. licensing company called BMI that you know isn't quite a record label, but it is like music business stuff, and it's basically about collecting royalties for when your songs get played. So maybe that's the joke. Yeah, maybe it goes way over my head if that's the joke, though. Like I, I don't really. Well, quite but at get first it. it's just like yeah, the BIM is the way, and then like as you get into it, like someone designs a sticker that they decide is the BIM, and they're like, great, it's now mandatory. Everyone wears the sticker. I like it. I know in Trump's America, it's easy to see fascism everywhere, right. but I do like it as like the ridiculousness of fascism being almost like laughable in that like, sure, whatever, fucking everyone wears the triangle now. That's the law. Oh, it doesn't matter if you're putting out a fire, you got to dance to the song. Or having surgery. Or you get a ticket. <laughs> Even the person undergoing surgery, like why would you schedule a surgery for the hour that you have to dance? But the person undergoing surgery tries its best to dance with his open heart. <laughs> exposed to the world that stuff's very funny that's very like josie and the pussycats so good. satire I, I appreciated that and that's why i think this movie's so interesting like that part is clearly funny like that whole sequence of all the different people there is no doubt in my mind that that was intentionally funny and so you have to go okay it's over the top it's silly what else is intentionally funny and what isn't and it's hard for me to parse but all of it feels a piece with each other. Like, nothing feels incongruent from the rest of it, right? Like, it does feel all of a piece. So it's, well, if that was intentional, what else is intentional? I don't know. But it, it does give this vision of a world where, like, they're controlling a fascist state with American Idol and silly rules. And, again, it does hit, like, weirdly close to home, even as a satire. I mean, you have me questioning what I'm supposed to be feeling when I listen to these full-length rock songs. Because it is like the Beatles movie, and like these are full-length music videos where you listen to the song from like the beginning to the end through all the different choruses. And I think at certain points you are supposed to think these songs are cool. Like at least that like Leather Daddy Maybe. cruising Speed Freak song, I think it's supposed to be like a cool rock number. And it's not like I didn't find something to enjoy in there. Like, I really love the dragginess of it all. The yeah. makeup and the costuming and the glitter and everything. Really fun to watch. There's just something about the music. Like, I never connected to it. And I think I also am not giving this movie a fair shake in that the version that's available right now on Amazon is SD. Oh, it's, it looks terrible. Yeah, sorry. I have the Blu-ray. I really need to see it on Blu-ray. You should because... Just for laziness and not wanting to go find it, <laughs> I started watching it on Amazon, and I'm like, fuck this. Like, it's one of those Amazon things that someone probably just uploaded it. It might not even be a, an official release. Right. It, it does look terrible. Yeah, and I felt kind of bad, honestly. I was like, well, I'm obviously enjoying the visual splendor of this and watching that one aspect in the worst way possible. So, yeah. like, maybe if I saw this in, like, crisp digital restoration, that pleasure would maybe outweigh some of my, like, just disinterest in any of the music in this. But I feel like you're saying earlier, like, canon films were ripping off specific things. And I think this is going for, like, a Rocky Horror, Phantom of the Paradise, 
maybe Beyond the Valley of the Dolls kind of like yeah. rock musical thing when it's more contemporary mode that it should have been going for is like Xanadu or the Village People movie uh, Can't Stop the Musical, which I love. Like, I think bad disco music would have translated better than bad rock music because it's not as earnest and it's more about having a good time. See, I just there's definitely rock music when like they're singing for their American Idol BIM show. But there's also just fully fledged musical numbers that I think are less rocky than that. I guess maybe a little glam rock like Rocky Horror Picture. I, I guess I buy that. A yeah, little there's a little, little bit of a stage musical show tunes kind of vibe too. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I'm not exactly open to that either, though. <laughs> That's fair. I just rewatched that uh, David Ehrlich countdown video from this year, and like half of the song yeah. choices this time were show tunes. And usually, like, I have these like transcendent, like, emotional responses watching those. But this year, I was just like, God, I fucking hate show tunes, like, through the whole thing. <laughs> so that might just be a personal bias that I need to get the fuck over. I did see that video, and most of the show tunes choices are not songs I would listen to, even if I thought they worked fine in the video. When I saw Xanadu, I ended up listening to the Xanadu soundtrack. Not all the way through. There's definitely some songs, like that weird mashup one that's kind of eye-rolling. But it has some ELO songs that I liked, and I like ELO, and I like the song Xanadu, and some stuff that I really hadn't heard much before. So I found myself skipping over some songs, but listening to the soundtrack after. When I saw Phantom of the Paradise, like I ended up listening to those songs all the time. There is not an ounce of me that is looking to to find the soundtrack for this movie. Like, I am not interested in listening to any of these songs outside of the context of the visuals and the full, like, the full vision that you're getting all at the same time. But I do think in the context of the movie, I just feel like somehow it just works. Like, they're not good, but they're not good in a way that matches everything else that's going on. In a way that's very hard for me to describe, but... Also, just like I am touched by the idea of, well, sure, this is the society that's controlling music. And and I think it's distinct. Like, it doesn't sound to me like anything, really. (laughs) And mainly it doesn't sound like anything because most musicals wouldn't, these songs wouldn't get past quality control. So in the same way, like I said, like, sometimes it's fun to find the fateful findings of the world. Like, this movie wouldn't exist with any, any semblance of quality control. Right. Right. And so seeing a movie with songs like this, it's not even that they're bad songs. It's just they don't even match the concept of songs in a lot of, <laughs> a lot of ways. And so, so that part of it is so interesting to me because I'm just – I'm watching songs that don't seem to understand what a song is. And that is something you don't see that often. And – Matched with these, like, insane, over-the-top visuals of someone who had money to burn and, like, a hole in their nose is so interesting. Like, it, it does work for me. The songs do work in a way that they would never work if I was just driving around listening to someone scream, the BIM is the way, 50 times a day. I can't imagine listening to the song separately from the movie, but I, I will say, like... I keep mentioning how much I don't like the music because that is a major roadblock for me. But I did enjoy the movie just as like a visual feast, um, especially like the sort of book ended biblical stuff like yeah. that opening like vision of hell and that closing like ascent to heaven is just so in like fucking a, in weird. like a fucking Chrysler. It's so weird. I also one of my favorite stupid little things in the movie. I could I can get into a million things, but I'll just say one moment. So she goes. And finds the hippies in the park. And literally, the guy's like, we're hippies. You may remember us from the 60s. We've been hiding here for a while. <laughs> and so she stays 
and ends up getting together with her former bandmate. And then a year later, they find him, and it cuts right to a year later. And then a year later, they have a son, and that son is at least five to six right. years old. <laughs> There's something about that that is so charming. Like, not only did they decide they need to have a kid, which doesn't matter because he's on screen for 30 seconds, but they chose to A, highlight it's been exactly a year, and B, chose to give them a kid that's six years old. It's almost like they didn't trust us to recognize that time had passed. But, like, the fact that they had a kid that age and they all had, like, long facial hair now, like, that would have told the whole yeah. story. You didn't have to, like, put a timestamp on it. Well, it feels like a movie that doesn't trust the audience in anything, which is also <laughs> odd to see. Like, we complain that movies don't trust the audience enough, and I think that's a legitimate concern. But this is a movie that wants to, A, remind you that the year it takes place in is 1994, and that 1994 is considered the future <laughs> about 30 times. It does feel like to me like an overly worried studio note that's like, fuck, what if they think this is like today that we think this is what's going on in 1980? They'll walk out of the theater like make sure you let them know that it's the year 1994 and based on the Gregorian calendar (laughs) and how time works in one one flow. As far as we know, 1994 would be considered the future. So everything's okay. And I think that's why a lot of canon movies are so entertaining. It feels like excess coupled by crippling fear of the audience won't get it and doing all these things that do uh, make the movie more interesting that like no movie would do because you don't need to be reminded that it's the future. It's like if it escaped from New York, everyone kept walking around like, hey, snake, it's 1997. The future. I wonder if a little bit of that was like appealing to American audiences who wouldn't be watching like Eurovision, which like you were saying, this does feel like a preemptive, like American idol thing, but it's definitely pulling from like the Eurovision song contest. I guess there was star search, right? Right. I guess that that is there. Yeah. And later we had like uh, the running man does a very similar like television fascism setup, but there's something about this. That's like really disorienting. If you've not, like familiar with that Eurovision song contest setup, <laughs> which I assume most audiences wouldn't have been in America in 1980, but yeah, it's definitely hammered home way more than it needs to be. It is funny that we're at the point though, that like anytime I watch any movie like uh death race, 2000 or the running man or fucking the apple. I'm like, oh, this reminds me of Trump. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, movies like the super Mario brothers movie will, you know, just put a Trump stand in in there just so you don't have to make the connection yourself. It's just part of the fabric. I, we actually talked about this cause we did our um, future sport month, like three months after he was elected just, and like, so every movie we were watching is like takes place in a fascist society, which of course then reminds you of who the president is. And also like, it's also like fascism in games, which is, You know, we have a fucking fascist game show host as our president. So, (laughs) but one thing that Peter and I were saying is like, well, it's because all these movies modeled their fascist leaders as what if Hitler was a game show host? And that's what we have. So we're not actually uh, being reminded of Trump. We're being reminded of this like 80s caricature of what Hitler would be like in 1980, which is what Trump is today. But there are people who, I, I mean... I'm trying to think of like specific examples, but I think like Super Mario Brothers and like uh, Back to the Future Two. Oh yeah, I mean they were specifically Trump. Yeah, they were like, yeah. what is the stupidest possible fucking idiot future we could devolve into? Yeah. <laughs> so like watching it now is like, yeah, we we made it there eventually. We we found the way. I'm sure someday Trump will tweet, hey hey hey, the big <laughs> <laughs> mandatory uh, Trump Appreciation Hour is definitely on its way at some point. Yeah. 
Well, just on the whole, I think this was a really fun batch of movies. I don't want to sound like I was down on the Apple. Kind of how we were talking about Head, like, just in a visual level. Like, if this was on mute in the background at a party while yeah. another soundtrack was playing and you just sort of, like, caught glimpses of it, you're like, what the fuck is this? I think it does have a really interesting DIY, like, glamour quality to it. And I think all three of these movies have that same thing. Just on a visual spectacle level, this, like... Oh, these are drug movies. You watch them when you're on drugs. That gives them a lot of like room to visually experiment. Yeah. The thing that kicks it into high gear to me in general is like the music also has to be good. If the music in head wasn't as good as it is, I don't know if I would have loved it as much as I did. They actually play like really good rock songs on top of all the other they things do. we praised earlier. Uh, which is also something you don't necessarily expect from the monkeys. Well, and in retrospect, those uh, that album that came with Head and those songs were like considered some of the most highly regarded too of their career as like contemporary critic arc uh, our contemporary critics looking back. Mm-hmm. Separate from their pop hits, a lot of those songs are considered some of the best uh, monkeys compositions. Like that time. "Circle in the so- Sky" song about like looks yep. like we're coming back around again. That one's really good. Yep. The yep. Porpoise song is the really slow like George Harrison riff. That's great. The song that David Jones dances to is really oh good. yeah, that's that's a very musical theater number that I can get on board with. But it's still like a it's still like a poppy uh, monkey song, but that gets aggressively faster and yeah. like has like a level of franticness and anxiety to it, uh, which I really like. And I think it's pretty clear that we both appreciated the monkeys the most out of all three of these movies. Oh yeah. On Letterboxd, both head and the apple have five stars for me. (laughs) And I legitimately love the apple, but head is like, head is just amazing all the way around. And, and like you said, you don't have to put any qualifiers on like why you specifically like it. Like it is just a, it's great music. It's like, I don't want to say nothing that you've seen, but it, it does kind of feel like Head deserves some level of hyperbole to that effect because it's not that I haven't seen skits or something like that, but this idea of like a, a huge band who's been rejected by the public doing this like anti-war, anti-cop, anti-misogyny, anti-racism sketch comedy movie about their deaths there's not an equivalent. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe NSYNC's on the line. I haven't seen, <laughs> I haven't seen that either, but I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> if anything, it, it might relate most to the Tim and Eric stuff we were talking about at the top of the episode. Yeah. Where it's like aggressive weaponized irreverence, but even the Tim and Eric stuff is more just about the pointlessness of existence where head has more of a, like in the moment political angle to it. Yeah. And again, not the source you would expect that from. So that, no. Only makes it more impressive when you realize like the messenger that's coming with the message. Yeah, these all three of these movies, uh, two of them fun to rewatch. Uh, I, I and and one was great to watch for the first time. I was I was really looking forward to you know someone who uh, ends up having to record or watch a lot of content uh, for the show. Sometimes it gets more exciting to watch the new stuff when you're recording a podcast than the old stuff. But both the Apple and Head were like two movies that I was like foaming at the mouth to be able to watch again and was very excited to come on and talk to you about also last thing i'll mention all three of these movies under 90 minutes love it love it i'm rereading uh john waters's um memoir his first one called shock value and he was talking about yeah. how the first cut of pink flamingos was like 
two hours and something minutes long. And he like cried because he's like, no movie should ever be over 90 minutes. So I had to like cut a huge chunk out of this film <laughs> and he's right. And I'm glad he did it. But uh, it was yeah. just great to read that again because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Well, like I said earlier, this is our last episode of the year. We will be coming back with our, you know, top movies of 2019 episode next. I know you usually do a top movies of the year before soon, right? Is that is that about where you are on the calendar? Uh, yeah, so that first week in January, we do the best movies of 2018. We actually recorded that back in September, which is a really fun, really fun episode. And right before that, if you probably the week this comes out, we're in the middle of our a very saccharine Christmas month. So if you want to listen to just Peter and I talk about every Christmas episode of Full House and Fuller House. Wow. And we spent three and a half hours talking about it. Not a joke. That episode is probably out. We That's going to get edited down quite a bit. But uh, we did record that uh, last week. And you would think, oh, three and a half hours. They probably joked around a lot and barely got to full house. And let me tell you, no, no, no. <laughs> it was three and a half hours of all full house and fuller house talk. And it's going to be an interesting episode. It's very different. We usually cover a movie a week based on a theme. And we we tend to, the first uh, week of the year, we always do these best of uh, the year before episodes. And then Halloween and Christmas and our uh, anniversary episodes, we tend to kind of open it up to not just doing a movie, but just doing something that we find is interesting and relevant. So this was a really fun diversion for us, um, both the month as a whole and then ending on just doing a bunch of television episodes for uh, a show that Peter and I have a lot of thoughts on. So, yeah, it's on. Uh, you can find We Live to Watch. Uh, our website is WLTWpodcast.com, but no one listens to episodes on there. Uh, you can find us on like every major Spotify, uh, iTunes podcasts, uh, Stitcher some other ones I'm not sure totally exist, but we're not too hard to find. And I love being on the show. I, I'm, I don't know when I'll be back, but I'm very excited to, always to talk to y'all. Like I said earlier, uh, I think, or like we both said, it's very similar vibe to this show. It's just that y'all usually do a more deeper dive into each film. Like I'd say one episode of the Swamp Flicks podcast is basically like a whole theme month for y'all. Yeah. Agreed. But I think the sensibilities are very similar. Otherwise, just the format's slightly different. And, you know, we have different takes. Yeah, I love this podcast. I uh, love listening to all your other guests. Hosts. I really kind of like the collective that you've built here. Your reviews, especially if it's a movie that I've seen, I, I always am interested to see your takes. It is rare to find people that have the same philosophy about art in general. And so even when our tastes don't align, like I said earlier on, when you recommend a movie or Swamp Flex recommends a movie as a whole, it's usually something that's going to get added quickly to my watch list because I know your philosophy in approaching art and thus like a recommendation isn't based on something that's going to sound uh, hyperbolic and stupid. But like that's that is how I think when I see something that you've liked. And that's and that's what I'm most interested in anyways. Like I'm not neither of us like hate watching stuff. We're always looking for art that is interesting, unique. I share your kind of eye rollingness at like all the prestige drama series of movies that we come up with. Like I want to see stuff that's like interesting. And so, yeah, I always know that your podcast website is going to provide me with a lot of good takes in that area. I mean, ditto. I'm always interested when y'all are doing as well. Very avid listener. It's never miss it. Should I tell Peter that? Or do you want to keep, uh, don't tell him that he's already got a big enough ego. It's fine. Um, (laughs) 
Well, we'll see y'all in a couple weeks. Uh, thanks yeah. for listening. Check out We Love to Watch. Bye, everybody. Bye.